Thanks, David and Esther, for leading us in song, for preparing our hearts to come to this moment, to hear God's word proclaimed. I invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, to open it with me to the book of Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Uh, My name is DJ. For those of you who might not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and today it's going to be my privilege to lead our study in God's word. We open it uh, not as a book that has some nice ideas about life. We open it as God's revelation of himself to us. When we look at these words this morning, we are looking at God speaking into human history, revealing his character, revealing his nature, and revealing his message for us to hear. So this is a significant thing. We at Trinity make a pattern of working through books of the Bible bit by bit, trying to to unpack God's story as he presents it to us. And that has us lately in the book of Ruth. We are actually coming down the home stretch of Ruth uh, in chapter four. We've got two sermons left this week, and then Dave will close us up next week. Uh, He got the opening and the closing of of the book. So well done there. Uh, But Ruth four, one through 12, If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that's got some space for notes, an outline of the the message and the text, Uh, Dave's in the back, he can uh, can get you one of those. If you don't have a listening guide and would like one, just slip your hand up, he'll make sure that you get one of those this morning uh, as you join me in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And Ruth, as we have found over the last couple of months in our study, is a story about redemption. You've probably heard us say that once, twice, maybe 87 times so far in our study, that this is a story about redemption. This is a story about God taking what is bitter and making it sweet. God taking what is empty and making it full. God taking, taking what is broken and making it whole. And we've looked at that journey of redemption growing over the last couple of months as we've worked through the first three chapters. We've looked at the bad decisions and the heartbreaking circumstances that landed Naomi and Ruth in dire need of redemption. We've looked at Naomi's hopeless desperation. We've looked at Ruth's remarkable faith. We've looked at Boaz's lavish generosity. We've seen hints of redemption. We've seen shadows of redemption. We've seen echoes of redemption. And this morning, as we come to chapter four, redemption is finally here. What we've been building to over the first three chapters of this book comes to its climax in our text this morning in chapter four. If last week was the climax of the story's tension, this week is the fulfillment of the story's longings. In this week's text, we're going to see Boaz, his redemption of Ruth and of Naomi completed. We're going to see the two of them, uh, a promise of their joining. We're going to see everything that's been building come to its conclusion, but we're going to see beyond this text as well this morning. Because in the details of this text, we don't just find more about Ruth, about Boaz, about Naomi. We don't just find principles to apply to our lives today, though we will find all of those things. Ultimately, what we find is a window into the redemptive heart of God. This is the same pattern that we've been going through as we've read throughout the first three chapters of the book is that we want to understand this story in its context. And especially this week, the whole chapter revolves around a, a, a ritual, around a formal process that is really quite foreign to us. So we need to dig in contextually, understand what is going on here in the life of Boaz and Ruth and the other characters who, who come in and out here. And we want to take from that understanding principles and apply them to our lives so that when you and I walk out of here today, we understand how God might want to mold and shape and change us to look more like he wants us to look, ultimately to look more like Christ. But beyond those two things, there is something far deeper, far more significant and far more beautiful at play in this story than just those things. And we want to look through this shadow of a tale into the redemptive heart of God and see how this is but a piece of the story that he is weaving throughout history that results in the redemption in Christ, our sure and steady anchor who has brought us into his family. So we're going to read together Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and then we will dive in uh, with that as our outline. We're going to look at the story in its context, we're going to apply some principles to our lives, and then we're going to see what is this actually all about. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. 
And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it here in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That's God's word for us today. Let's pray as we continue. Our God and Father, the author of this text, the author of all of history, we ask you this morning, that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us this day by the power of your word and the working of your spirit to the praise of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen. All right, so we pick up here in chapter four, verse one, and we kind of, we pick up, we need to do a little bit of, of uh, of setup because last week's text flows right into this. And we see here in, in chapter four, Boaz beginning to take action based off what happened at the end of chapter three. So if you think back to David's sermon last week, we saw that Ruth approached Boaz at the behest of Naomi's plan. She came to him. She asked for redemption that he would come in and that he would, uh, would, take her and Naomi under his wing, that he would marry her and provide a future for their family. Remember, Naomi and Ruth were both widowed. Uh, in this culture, in that time, that meant zero prospects. That, me that meant being destitute. That meant poverty. And so they were in need of redemption. And God's law through Moses provided for a near relative when, when a man died and left a widow behind and left no children behind. God's law provided for a near relative to come in to marry that woman and to give her a son, to give her an heir. And that heir would take on not the name of the redeemer, but the name of the dead husband. And so Ruth is in need of someone to keep her family and Naomi as well, to keep their family's name alive and give them a hope and a future in Israel. And Boaz agreed to do that last week. But Boaz said, well, there's a catch though. I'm not the nearest redeemer. I'm not the nearest relative. There's one who is nearer than I, and he has the first right to do this. And Boaz says, if he will redeem you, then great, let him do it. But if not, then I will step in and redeem you. And he gives Ruth this gift, this lavish gift of grain, sends her back to Naomi. Naomi sees the gift, and she says, this man is not going to rest until he has set the matter straight, until he has settled things. And it's there that we pick up with Boaz's actions this morning, and we find that Boaz does not rest until he settles the matter. Verse 1, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Notice the tense here, that while chapter 3 ends with the discussion between Ruth and Naomi, while they're talking, which is in the early hours of the morning after this encounter had taken place, Boaz had already gone up. 
We have this image that Boaz springs immediately into action and he is waiting at the city gate when the sun comes up as the traffic comes in and the people begin to move about. Boaz had gone up to the gate and he had sat down there. Boaz is at the place of meeting, the place where business was conducted in this culture at the entrance to the city of Bethlehem. And the narrator gives us another little bit of surprise here at the end of uh, verse one going into verse two. The redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. But he doesn't just say the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. He gives us that word again that we've seen pop up so many times here in the book of Ruth. And behold, remember we've said that this word behold is not just an old timey way of telling a story. But when we see this, this is the narrator injecting surprise. Every time you see the word behold pop up in this tale, it's as if the author is trying to draw our eyes to, well, isn't that a funny coincidence? right? Boaz is sitting down. He's at the entrance to the city gate and behold, the guy who he's waiting for walks right on in. Every time you see behold, remember God is at work. We're meant to see God's providence, his hand working in all the circumstances of these people's lives, great and small. And so Boaz sees this nearer redeemer come in and he says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He kindly invites him to sit, and then they invite 10 elders of the city to join as well and gather around as witnesses to the transaction that is going to take place. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So now we have Boaz. We have this nearer relative, this nearer redeemer, as the text calls him, and we have 10 witnesses gathered around. And we'll see later on from some details, some other people kind of stop and gather, and we form a little crowd here to see what's going on at the city gate this morning. And now Boaz starts the conversation, and he leads it with information that Naomi is selling the parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech, and an invitation for the man to buy it. So he kind of sets out, here's the story. Naomi, verse 3, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Boaz begins the process in these first three verses of pursuing redemption. He is working a plan to make good on what he has said to Ruth last week that he would do. And he leads this conversation to this nearer redeemer, a guy who's not of the best character in the world. We've had hints of that so far. We're going to see it today kind of in its fullness. Remember, all throughout, there's been this notion that, well, there's this nearer redeemer than Boaz. Why have Naomi and Ruth not gone after him? Why do they go after Boaz and not this guy if this is the first guy up in line? Well, apparently Naomi sees something in this guy that says, this is not really who I want for Ruth, not who I want her to be with. And here, Boaz leads the conversation in a very particular way. He, he gives information to this guy a little bit at a time. And what's the first piece of information he gives is that Naomi is selling her land. And he says that, that you are basically up first in this verse four. I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, because there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz says, hey, our relative Naomi, she's selling the land that belongs to Elimelech, and you've got first right on it. Let me know if you want to buy it or not, because if not, I'm the only one who comes after you, and I'd, I'd like to know what I need to do. And the man in verse 4 says, I will redeem it. The man agrees thinking, honestly, that he's agreeing to buy land and enrich his own fortunes. Let's think a little bit about the way that this goes down. When a family was forced to sell their property in order to survive, when destitution and poverty came across people and they had to sell their land in order to survive, and remember, this is an agricultural society. Your land is your life. It is your livelihood. It is how you grow that which provides for you. So someone selling their land in this culture is the last gasp, the last most desperate straits that they could be in. And when a family is forced to sell their land in order to survive, God's law through Moses prescribed that a near relative was to be the one to purchase it, keeping it in the family, sustaining their relative, and enabling the land to return to the poor relative during the year of Jubilee. Listen to God's word in Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 28. It says, If your brother becomes poor 
and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So let's summarize that text, the structure that it lays out. When someone is forced to sell their land, they're to sell it to the near redeemer, to a family member who will buy it and care for it until such a time that that person regains enough money to be able to buy it back. And if there is no near redeemer, if there's no family member who can purchase it, then whoever purchases it from him is to be ready to sell it back to that man when he has the means, when he has the opportunity to come back and buy it. But we're told if the, if the person who has to sell it does not have sufficient means, if he does not get the money to get his land back, then it shall remain in the hands of the one who purchased it until the year of Jubilee. Jubilee was this custom in Israel where every so many years the law dictated that property that was sold returned to the hand of the one that sold it. And so this person, this poor person, after so many years would get their land back, even if they had no means to purchase it. This was written into God's law to provide for the poor, to provide for the destitute, and to show that God is a God who looks after the orphan, who looks after the widow and provides for them. And so let's take that and use that lens to consider what's going on in the mind of this near redeemer. So he knows, all right, If I buy the land, then I have to be ready to sell it back to the person I'm buying it from, in this case, Naomi, down the line if they are able. And if not, then it's eventually going to pass to the the man or to the heirs in the year of Jubilee. And so what he's probably thinking here is, I'm going to buy it from Naomi. I'm going to enrich myself. I have more land. I have the ability to, to use it, to grow, to do business. And then Naomi has no heirs. There's no man in the family who's going to be able to buy it back. And furthermore, even when the year of Jubilee comes, there's going to be no one to give it to. And so what he's thinking most likely here is, this is a great deal. I get to buy Naomi's land and use it to enrich my family's legacy, to enrich my inheritance. And so the guy thinks, hey, this is all right. I'm going to come out pretty good in this little deal. But Boaz then introduces some new information. I think it's very interesting the way he, he leads. And then, oh, but there's one more thing. Boaz says in verse 5, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. There's another custom in the law. We've talked about this throughout the, the past few weeks of our study that Again, when a a man died and left a widow and no children, no heirs, no future, the near redeemer would also marry that widow and give her a son, give her children, give her heirs to, to take the name of their deceased father and perpetuate his name, his inheritance in the land. And so here Boaz says, by the way, when you buy the land, you're also acquiring and redeeming Ruth, the Moabite. And you're going to be able to perpetuate the name of the dead of of her husband, Malon, of her uh, father-in-law, Elimelech. You're perpetuating their legacy in the land as well. And notice that this changes the guy's opinion of the situation. Then the Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself. And he's so honest here. I love, well, I don't love, but I I appreciate the brutal honesty of the man. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Surprising honesty, right? This isn't actually such a good deal for me now that you mentioned that piece. I, I don't want to impair my own inheritance. Think, think again. Here's the structure of this, my, of this man's thinking. I've got to make a small investment here to buy the land, but then most likely I get it in my family forever. It's a great deal. But now he realizes, okay, now the, I have to also provide for Ruth and for Naomi. So the upfront costs just went up. I'm purchasing the land and I'm providing for these two widows. And I also have to give Ruth an heir. And in the year of Jubilee, then the land is going to pass to that heir eventually. And so I'm bearing costs and I actually get nothing out of this. 
I'm impairing my own inheritance by giving up my resources I have now, and I don't get anything out of the deal. And he goes from, from saying, yep, I'm going to buy it, to actually, I can't, I can't. I can't do it. Not I will not. I cannot. This guy's focus is merely on himself, on his own prosperity, on his own gain. And it's interesting, he's even got a very short-sighted view of gain, right? A friend of mine from work pointed out to me this week, she was reading in Proverbs and came across Proverbs 18.22, which says, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. And she said, when she read that, she couldn't help but think of Boaz and Ruth, of this prize that Boaz gets in Ruth, this woman of incredible character, right? Proverbs 31 says that that a wife who fears the Lord is worth more than jewels. This guy has a very narrow focus on financial gain, and he misses this amazing and beautiful gift in Ruth. He's prizing the wrong thing. He's not prizing this woman that God has put right in front of him, but rather his own resources, his own gain, now, this is just a side note, but I would ask husbands, do we pressure, pressure, do we treasure and prize our wives like this, worth more than riches, more than fine jewels? Do you, do you love your wife in that way? Do you see the gift that God has given? Or are you like this guy, focused more on the tangible, on the financial, on the earthly? Moreover, not just do you love and treasure your wife like that, does your wife realize that you love and treasure her like that? Do your friends realize that you love and treasure her like that? This guy's focused only on his own gain, and even at that, he's got the wrong idea of what gain is. So he says, Boaz, take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. And it's here that we're invited first to notice the contrast between these two men. Notice the contrast between this nearer redeemer and between Boaz. Think about the way we've seen Boaz approach the law of Moses throughout the story in the way that he allows Ruth to glean in his land. Remember, the law provided that you leave some crops unharvested to allow the poor, the widow, the orphan to come in and glean. Boaz didn't just follow the letter of the law and just leave a nice narrow little strip, do the bare minimum. No, he, he lavishly gave gifts to Ruth invited her to have free reign of his field. He had his harvesters like accidentally drop some extra along the way so that it would be there for her. He's lavish in his generosity. He embraces the law of God as good and right, and he seeks to, to do everything he can in order to obey it and fulfill it. Yet this man sees the law, specifically the provisions for kinsmen redeemers, as a means of personal enrichment. All right, what can this do for me? And as soon as he understands that I'm not getting anything out of the deal, as soon as an obstacle or a roadblock is thrown in his way, he abandons his pursuit of righteousness. When obedience to the law is convenient and it benefits him, he's ready to jump right in. When it becomes costly, he not only says, I will not, but I cannot. In his casual selfishness, The selflessness and generosity of Boaz stands out all the more. You see, Boaz pursued redemption. He was at the gate first thing in the morning, seeking out this man, seeking out an audience with the elders to confirm the arrangements. This man who had the first right of redemption, he's the one that should have been active, should have been pursuing. He took the path of ease and of least resistance. He was deterred by the slightest degree of difficulty from the path that God had laid before him. And I want you to notice this. This is a very interesting detail. The name of Boaz is going to go down in history. And I don't want to steal too much thunder from, from Dave next week, though I'm probably going to end up doing that. Like Boaz ends up in the line of Jesus. Boaz's name, we're still talking about him 3,000 years later. This man's name, this near redeemer, is lost forever. We don't even know his name. It's as if by not recording his name, the narrator is saying, by the way, this guy is of no further significance. He enters the story, he exits the story. We don't even know who he is. Do you pursue the good relentlessly? Are you obedient to what God calls you to only as long as it's easy and costs you nothing? Who are you more like in this this scenario? Are you more like Boaz? Or are you more like this near redeemer? Do you see God, his word, and his gospel simply as a means of personal fulfillment and enrichment? 
Like, I, I'm going to follow the Lord because the Lord can do all these amazing things for me. But, but when it's hard, maybe not. Or have you taken seriously Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow him, knowing that there will be times when obedience is costly, but that doesn't change the fact that it's good and that God's promises still stand? Look at the difference in how these two men pursued redemption and ask yourself, which one am I more like? How is God calling me to pursue redemption, to pursue righteousness, to pursue the good like Boaz? And in verse 7, our story shifts from the, the pursuit of redemption to the purchasing of it. Boaz now has his opening. His way is clear. The man says, oh, it's all yours, Boaz. I, I can't redeem it. The cost is too great to me. And Boaz sees the opening, and we're told in verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. He makes an offer here. Now you might think this is a bit of a strange custom, taking off your shoe, giving it to somebody in order to, uh, to confirm the transaction. Like when you go to Walmart or you go out to lunch today, nobody's popping their sneaker off to give it to the, the cashier to pay for your lunch. And we might think, oh, this is a little bit weird. Take comfort in the fact that the original audience of the story probably would have found it strange. Because after all, the narrator explains it as, and here's what this means. So this practice wasn't even being practiced anymore by the time this book was written down. The author is giving the background so that we'll understand what is taking place here. And we can move right on and get the main point of the story without understanding the whole sandal being passed thing, but it is worth noting. This is most likely a visual expression of the promise that God made to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, where he said, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread on, I have given you. This is the promise God gave Joshua as they came into the land. And so you see that the shoe, the, the shoe symbolizes the place where it has tread and rights to it now pass from the man to Boaz. When I first read this story, for whatever reason, I thought it was Boaz that takes off the shoe and gives it to the man. It's, it's the opposite. It's this near redeemer takes off his shoe, passes it to Boaz and says, buy it for yourself. The man who had first rights to the property offers the shoe to Boaz, basically saying symbolically, what, where, I, where this shoe has tread, the thing that I have right to, I am passing it to you. The offer is to you to redeem it. And so Boaz agrees and proclaims to the elders and the other onlookers that he has completed the purchase, that he has purchased redemption and has redeemed the land and has redeemed Ruth and by extension, Naomi. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance and the that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz proclaims he's completed the purchase and now he has taken possession of all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to his two sons, Kilion and Malon. And I find that last bit rather significant. And here's why. He's not just taking ownership of Elimelech's property. He's taking ownership of Elimelech's legacy. He mentions, I've bought what, what, was, what belonged to Elimelech. I've also bought what belonged to his two sons. I've bought their legacy. I am taking responsibility and ownership of this family. And this is further illustrated by his next proclamation that he's bought Ruth as his wife. Why? In order to perpetuate the name of the dead and secure the family's future in Israel. He's making a financial transaction here with all the usual cultural trappings. We have the elders gathered around. We have witnesses. We have the passing of the shoe. But he's doing much more than that. And he realizes that he's doing much more than that. He's taking responsibility for Ruth, for Naomi, for their future. But think back over the story as we've seen so far. He's already been taking responsibility for Ruth, right? 
He's already been providing for her, allowing her to come and glean in his fields freely, saying, glean here and nowhere else so that you don't run the risk of being assaulted in another man's field. And he sends her home, not just with what she gleans, but loading her up with grain. Remember David last week told us about CrossFit Ruth, who's having to carry home 50 pounds of grain when, he, when she goes home to Naomi. Like he's lavishly taking responsibility and showing generosity. And so here, it's as if he's formalizing that responsibility. Right, We noted in weeks past, he took responsibility for Ruth even though he owed her nothing. He was under no obligation. He could have fulfilled the letter of the law, nothing more, and been completely fine. But obligation wasn't what caused him to take responsibility for her. It's as if now in this proclamation he's saying, I I will take the responsibility that I've already taken to provide for her, to provide for Naomi, to give them a future. And not just the responsibility, I'll take the obligation too. You're witnesses of that. He makes this public declaration in front of all the people. And he says, they are my responsibility now and I will perpetuate their name and secure their future. This this proclamation that he gives is so focused, not on himself, but on the legacy of Elimelech, on Ruth, on Naomi, Boaz is acting not to secure his own future his own, and enrich his own prospects like this near redeemer. He acts on behalf of those who are in need. He purchases redemption. And he doesn't just arrive at this place by accident, right? It's not as if Boaz just stumbles into making this incredible sacrifice and, and doing this thing to care for Ruth, to care for Naomi, Boaz has arrived here because of faithfulness to the law of God. All throughout the story, we've seen a pattern of Boaz not only following the letter of the law, but loving the spirit of it, loving the God who gave it and showing faithfulness to him. And it's through that pattern of small obedience, of small sacrifice, of small love for God that he eventually ends up doing something great. He ends up doing something remarkable of eternal significance. He doesn't realize even the significance that it will have. But he is used by God in an incredible way. Psalm 1 says this in verses 1 through 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Boaz is a paradigm for those verses, for that type of living. His law or his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. When you look at Boaz's life and his living, it looks like somebody who loves the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. And in all he does, he prospers. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Boaz is yielding fruit in his actions, in what he's doing in the life of Ruth, of Naomi. And in all that he does, he prospers. We see God's blessing, his hand poured out on Boaz here. And, and by the way, when we, when, don't be afraid to believe that, that in this notion that when one follows the law of the Lord and all he does, he prospers. Believing that last little phrase does not make, mean that you're believing the prosperity gospel. Right? What we see happening for Boaz is a blessing that is deep and rich, far beyond just gaining something materially. If we read in all he does, he prospers, and our first reaction is to list a bunch of caveats, then we're failing to place ourselves under the weight of what God is saying. And what we're seeing in the life of Boaz is love for the law, meditation on God's word, and righteous living bears benefit. It is great gain to the one who practices it. It might not look like it in this life and what we think of as great gain in every single circumstance, but when we look at Boaz, we see how God uses Boaz's love for him and his right living and right actions in order to bless others and ultimately Boaz himself. And so Boaz has purchased a piece of land. He has bought Ruth as his wife. And and maybe you're a little uncomfortable this morning with that language of him buying Ruth to be his wife. I mean, this is a different culture. This is a different context. The language is not what we would think of today. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, don't don't be bothered by that. Don't don't worry about it. Uh, And we're going to get into this in more detail later. 
But let me go ahead and say to you now, if you're uncomfortable about a person being purchased here, you're gonna be really uncomfortable with the ultimate reality that this text is pointing to and that we're gonna get to in just a few minutes. But Boaz is taking ownership of Ruth and all her problems, all her debts, all of her troubles and taking them on himself. He has purchased redemption. And so let's look at Boaz. Let's look at this near redeemer and let's compare ourselves. Are you the type of person who follows through when you say you will do something, who refuses to let the matter rest until it's complete? Do you keep your word like Boaz does here? Look, we, we heard him say, I'm going to do this. And then this morning we find he's at the gate before the sun comes up, pursuing and completing the matter. Do you bring things to completion? Is your word something someone can take to the bank? And are you selfless in your giving, thinking of others as more significant than yourself? Boaz, in purchasing redemption, he speaks the names of those whom he's intending to bless. The responsibility he takes on himself, the benefits he reserves for them. Did you catch that in the transaction? He says, I'm taking responsibility so that they might benefit. Do you live like that? Do you say, I'm going to take responsibility on myself and I'm going to seek to bless others and not the other way around, which is what that near redeemer was trying to do. So Boaz pursues redemption, Boaz purchases redemption, and then finally in verses 11 and 12, we see the praising of redemption. Sometimes the alliteration just kind of works out, and this is one of those weeks. The people who have borne witness to this transaction react to it in verse 11. And their reaction is one of wonder at Boaz's act, which is evidenced by the rich blessings that they pronounce over him. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders. So remember I said, we've got Boaz and the near redeemer. We have the elders, but then we're told here that, that a crowd had started to gather. There's even more people. And all of them said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They ask that Ruth might become like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. They are pronouncing here a blessing of fertility, right? What is it that has caused Ruth to be in such a desperate and, and dire strait? Well, her husband has died and she has no son to provide for her, to perpetuate the name of the family. And so they ask for children, May Ruth bear a son, an heir, to carry on the legacy of his dead father, of his dead grandfather. They're pronouncing a blessing of fertility, but they could not have imagined how prophetic their words would turn out to be. But more on that later. I promise we'll come back to that. I know I'm laying a lot of promises of stuff we'll come back to. We're going to get there. They proclaim a blessing of fertility. They also proclaim a blessing of righteousness that we see in, at the end of verse 11. Uh, may you act worthily in Epaphra and, in, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez. They ask that he would act worthily in Epaphra, which is another name for Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now, when we see repetition like that happen with, with synonyms in Scripture, we should see this as a means of emphasis. They're pronouncing this dual blessing and referencing the Bethlehem region both times. This is a way of saying, this is important. May this really, really happen. And they ask that he would be a man of continued worthy and righteous character, right? May you act worthily. And that he would be recognized as such among the people, that you would act worthily and be renowned. May you continue to act like you have act and may that bring blessing upon you from those whom you interact with. And then the final blessing is that the house of Boaz would be like the house of Perez, his ancestor, and the ancestor of all the Bethlehemites. The whole tribe of Bethlehem, or the whole city of Bethlehem was settled by descendants of this man, Perez. Perez was born to Judah from Tamar, a foreign woman. And without getting into the full details of this story, um, Perez was born from from Tamar, who was a foreigner, and he was born of less than ideal circumstances, right? You can go home and read Genesis 38 if you want to get the whole story. It's one of the most heartbreaking tales in Scripture, a tale of sin, uh, a tale of, of, of really Judah doing something that is wrong and shirking responsibility uh, and God bringing it around on his head. And God brings good out of that situation, out of this relationship. 
God brings the whole town of Bethlehem and all the descendants that come from him. And so you have here kind of a, a, I think it's not to be lost on us, that Ruth is also a foreign woman. And she's a foreign woman who has entered our, our story through less than ideal circumstances, not the same type as affected Perez, as Perez came from, uh, but not a great background. And so we have here kind of a blessing that just as God brought from Perez and his unfortunate origins a full blessing and a rich blessing, may God do the same for you, Ruth. May God make your house, Boaz and Ruth, like the house of our ancestor, Perez. May he do great things from your family's sad history. Redemption is a wonderful thing. It's worthy of praise. It's worthy of blessing. When we see redemption, whether on the small human scale like we see in this story or on the galactic cosmic scale that we're going to talk about here in just a moment, when we see redemption, we should rejoice over it. It should wow us. It should awe us. It should move us to wonder and to joy. And and that's what we see happen to the people here, right? They rejoice. They praise the act that they have just seen. And this pattern holds true for God. That's the way that the people looked to Yahweh. They looked to God as a redeemer and they rejoiced over God's redemption. Psalm 111 verse nine says, he being the Lord sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Do you notice that pattern? God has caused redemption to take place. He's pronounced a covenant. And so holy and awesome is his name. We worship, we rejoice as a result of the work that God has done. When we see redemption, we should be moved by it. And so as you've watched this story of redemption unfold, what has it made you think as you sat here Sunday after Sunday? How has it made you feel? Have you been moved by this story? Or do you walk out every Sunday and say, eh, It's nice enough, I guess. When you look at God's work of redemption in small scale in this life, have you been moved by it and have you been moved toward praise? What an amazing God who would do this in the life of Ruth, who would take Naomi from one who says, call me Mara, call me bitter, because that's all I have, and move her to fullness, move her to blessing. What a father, what a God. And so we stop there in verse 12. Dave's going to finish with the happily ever after, if you will, next week. But what do we ultimately do with this text? Remember back at the beginning of the sermon, I said, we're going to look and explore in context what it is that happened, as we should. And then we're going to apply principles from this story to our lives. And we have, and, and that's as we should as well. That's what we do when we encounter God's word. These things were written down as an example to us, as an instruction for us, are things the New Testament says. But is that all there is to Old Testament stories like this? Good and interesting tales, practical life lessons? I would posit to you, not only is there more to the story than that, but if we stop there with the story as a self-contained story and with practical life lessons for us, if we stop there, not only are we not getting the whole story, we're missing the main point of the story. Because Ruth is not a self-contained story, but it's rather a chapter in the broader story of God's redemptive work, right? Ruth is one tale tucked away in this little corner of the Old Testament set against the backdrop of the time of the judges. We're not meant to read it in isolation. We're not meant to read it as just a cool story about something God did in one little family, but we're meant to see it as an unfolding chapter in the history of redemption. Dave's going to get to hammer some of those points for us next week as we see the specifics spell out. But Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, when we see this as one piece of a larger story, they're important, but they're ultimately not the main characters of the story. God is the main character of the story of Ruth. And of every story throughout the Bible, when we were up at the basics conference, myself and the other uh, pastor elders over the past uh, couple weeks, uh, Alistair Begg preached a couple of sermons on the story of Gideon from the book of Judges, which was happening around the same time as our story today. And he talked about how the story of Gideon is ultimately not about Gideon. It's about God and the work that he is doing to deliver his people. And he said, because of that, Gideon isn't irrelevant to the story, but he is incidental. He's not the main point. I would posit to you that it's the same with our text today, that Ruth 
and Naomi and Boaz, they're not irrelevant, but they are incidental to the story. It's not ultimately about them. It's about something bigger. It's about God bringing redemption to his people, fulfilling his covenant, just like the psalmist proclaimed earlier. And so the ultimate point of this story, of chapter four of the book of Ruth, is how the story that we see, the redemption that we see here, functions as a shadow and an echo of the big story that God is weaving throughout human history. And the shadows of that and and the echoes of that are absolutely everywhere you could possibly look. As we've mentioned before in our study, a thousand years later, there would be another redeemer born in Bethlehem. There would be another redeemer from the family of Perez, from the family of Boaz and Ruth. And Jesus would come not simply to redeem a poor widow and her mother-in-law, but the whole world. This text this morning is about Christ. It's about the great, the true, the better redeemer. And how did, how did Jesus pursue redemption? He wasn't like the near redeemer who turned aside at the first sign of personal difficulty or cost. Now, Jesus pursued us relentlessly, giving up riches beyond imagination and absorbing our burden at great cost to himself. Jesus was like Boaz. He wasn't like the nearer redeemer. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8 says this about Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' entire earthly existence was a prelude to the work that he did on the cross, the very reason that he had come. He didn't shirk suffering, but rather he did not rest until he had settled the matter, the matter being the redemption of our souls. Jesus didn't come and see and and say, God, I'm gonna follow your plan. And then at the first sign of hardship, actually, there's not really much in this for me. No, he pursued the thing all the way. He took the cost on himself He didn't just toss us a few coins, but he said, I am making you mine. We've talked about how Jesus pursued redemption, and that brings us, how did he purchase redemption? He didn't just cover our past losses. He doesn't just buy back the field so that we can reclaim it at some point in the future. He took ownership of us. He made us his. He took us into his family. Remember when I told you earlier that if you didn't like the language of Boaz buying Ruth, purchasing her as his wife, that you really wouldn't like the ultimate reality it signifies? Well, here we are. Here's the deal. Every man, woman, and child on the earth is owned by someone else, without exception. We are either slaves to sin or we are purchased by God and are his slaves now, his servants now. Jesus himself, in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 34, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And that is the history of humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have things in your past that you'd rather not think about, that you'd rather not talk about. You probably have things in your past this morning that you'd rather not think and talk about. And so do I. And the Bible says that on our own, when we pursue sin and unrighteousness, we are a slave to sin and unrighteousness. But the story goes on. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are slaves to sin. We are owned by sin. But Paul says when we come to Christ, when we are in him, we got to realize we're still not our own. We were bought with a price, the price being Christ's blood poured out for us. And we belong to him now. Our allegiance, our life, our love belongs to the one who has purchased us. And Paul continues in Romans chapter 6 to lay out this journey from death to life, from one master to another, where he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves 
to righteousness. We are owned by sin or we are owned by God who has purchased us and given us a hope and a future. Every single human being serves a master. And, you know, let's go beyond even what the Bible says. Let's take a page out of Paul's playbook. Even our own modern-day prophets understand this, right? Even our cultures, our cultures, philosophers and wise men get this premise. The evidence that I'm going to give you for that is let's turn to the modern-day philosopher Loki. Yes, that Loki. Uh, if you've seen the first Avengers movie, Loki is the villain, uh, the, the Asgardian who comes in and tries to conquer all of the earth. And in the movie, as Loki shows up and he's, he's in a town in Germany and he's showing himself as this great conqueror as the first stage of his conquest of the world, he believes, he implores this crowd of people to kneel to him, to kneel before him. And I want you to listen to this speech from the film. Loki says, kneel, is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It is the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. And an old German man stands up in the crowd and he says, not to men like you. To which Loki replies, there are no men like me. And the German man says, there are always men like you. Now, Loki's speech is twisted with a cynical bent to it, but I would posit to you that it's actually absolutely true. We were made to be ruled. And in the end, we will always kneel to someone, to something, to sin or to our Lord Christ. We will always kneel, but we were not made to kneel to men like Loki. We were made to kneel to this man. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, and, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Believer, if you are in Christ this morning, Jesus has bought you. You are his. He has purchased your redemption. And if you're not in Christ, you are not free. You are a slave to sin. There are only two states that the human heart can exist in. Either slavery to sin and death or a purchase and transfer to a new master who gives life and blessing beyond imagination and invites his servants to rule with them. Did you catch that at the end of Revelation 5? You have made them kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God has purchased us. He has brought us to be his and he says you will rule and reign with Jesus. What a master this is. This is who we were intended to kneel to. And how is his redemption praised? How is the redemption of Christ praised? We heard earlier in, in the end of our chapter today that the people who gathered around, they blessed that Ruth might build up the house of Israel like Leah and Rachel did. And this was certainly fulfilled for the nation of Israel. Remember I said that these words were prophetic far beyond even that. Throughout Israel's history, there is an ever-present sense that its significance extends beyond being merely an ethnic community that God is doing something larger through the sons of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Abraham was promised that his descendants would be blessed, yes, but he was also promised that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Throughout even the Old Testament, Gentiles like Rahab, like Ruth, are woven into the most 
proud and promising line in the history of Israel, its most special family lineage. And then as we arrive in the New Testament, Paul would clearly show to us that Abraham's two true children are not those who are biologically descended from him, but are those who share in his faith. God was doing something in the people of Israel, in the house of Israel, beyond mere family. Through Ruth, the house of Israel was truly built up to include you, to include me. We Gentiles were brought in through the work of Jesus Christ, the son of Ruth, the son of Boaz, and brought together so that the God is building up, our God is building up his house, the house of Israel, and it extends from Israel, it extends to Kentucky, it extends across the entire globe. God has built up a house in Jesus Christ and called all men from everywhere to repent, to believe, and to come in. Through Ruth, the house was built up truly. And so when we look at ultimate redemption, praise comes not merely from a small group of elders and townsfolk, but from a thundering chorus of voices that no man can count and from creation itself. Continue on in Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What is the point of the book of Ruth? Is that we would look at what goes on, we would look through and beyond what is going on in this story, and we would behold our Redeemer. We would see Jesus Christ. That is what this text is about. That is the main point. The main character is not Naomi, it's not Ruth, it's not Boaz, it's Jesus. And it's Jesus who invites us, come and kneel. That's the ultimate message of this text this morning. Abandon your cruel, cheap imitation of a master who you follow, who you serve, and kneel before your Redeemer. It is what you were made for. And in the end, you will always kneel. Come to the one who gives the bread of life, the waters of life without cost. Come to the one who has taken your sin on himself, who has borne the cost of your debt and promises life and a hope and a future, a legacy. You will be a king and a priest with Christ, reigning with him. Come to Jesus. And if you are in Christ, when you look at Boaz, when you look at Ruth chapter 4, see the principles, apply them to your life, seek to grow in obedience. But more than that, see your God, see your Redeemer, see your Savior, and glory in Him. Join your voice with the chorus that no man can count and praise the wonder and the might and the valor and the glory of your Redeemer. Join me in prayer. Our God and Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in wonder at what you have worked through your son Jesus. The very small foretaste that we get in this text this morning, Father, may it move us. May it draw our eyes not simply to Boaz, not simply to Ruth, but may it draw us to Christ. May we see the fulfillment of all things in him. May we see the one to whom we were made to kneel. And may we see the hope and the future that he has purchased for us by his blood. God, I pray that if there is anyone in this room this morning who hears these words, who hears and looks at this story of redemption through Jesus and says, I'm an outsider to it. I don't know this God. 
God, that you would bring them home, that they would abandon their slavery to sin and that they would be one who kneels before you, who finds themselves purchased by your blood, ransomed, redeemed, and brought into your family. God, may they repent. May they have faith in Christ. And God, for the rest of us, may we glory in redemption. May our lives sing the praises of the one who has purchased us who has redeemed us, who has called us out of darkness and into light. May you floor us when we read these texts, when we hear your word. May you remind us that this this story, remarkable as it is, Father, is just a piece in the grand tale of what you are doing in this world. That story, Father, it continues in us. God, may Trinity Church proclaim as incidental characters, the unending truth and wonder and glory of your work of redemption. May we offer it to the nations. May we offer it to our neighbors. May we proclaim Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has come again or will come again and he has bought by his blood the souls of men and brought them into the family of God. The true house of Israel is built up because of what Jesus has done. God, do that work through us today, we pray. Call men and women to yourself and be glorified. Help us, strengthen us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.